0: the L.A. private eye, where the city initially looks sort of beautiful, and then as he starts to investigate the crime, you then discover all that corruption and ugliness below the surface.
1: You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dalsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow, And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates.
2: This is with one of my favorite Authors and fellow human beings. This is Dahlia Schweitzer. I truly feel that when she writes a book, she doesn't think of me, but there <laughs> is this. <for> you. <laughs> it's, there's, there's like this weird metaphysical connection that's like she's like, ah, who's gonna read this? She didn't even know me before she wrote most of her books or had these ideas, but she knew me. I mean, I'm just a fanboy, you know, like I, I, (laughs) everything she puts out there, I turn the page with a huge smile on my face. The underpinning of this book is film noir. Mm-hmm. which I'm a lifelong student, junkie, major lover. It's my security blanket. It's the thing that I'm very passionate about. I try to explain why in this episode. I've been on other podcasts to explain my love of film noir as well. And Dahlia just nailed it on this. And what, what I really liked about this episode is she was primarily focused on the city of Los Angeles and its unique setting for la detectives private eye detectives and it's fantastic because here in 2022 there is a shift back to classic film noir one of the movies that was up for best oscar this year gosh escape uh, um i don't know why i'm not remember it but in any event there's a lot more focus once again on film noir and why it's so ever-present and we discuss it on this episode What did you take away from this episode? Oh, Nightmare Alley. Sorry, Nightmare Alley with Bradley Cooper. (laughs) So sorry. I don't know why that skipped my brain there for a second. That was the movie that, uh, it was not just Nightmare Alley, the new Batman movie. The new Batman movie is a film noir. I mean, not a film noir because- As I explained on this episode, to be a classic film noir, you have to have been released between 1941 and 1958, but it's a noir. And Nightmare Alley is a remake of a 1946 movie with Tyrone Power. I could just nerd out. I'm going to stop talking on this intro. I'm sorry. I'm just like going off because I'm so nerdy about this stuff. Gwen, what are your two cents on this?
1: I think it's awesome. I mean, I love the genre in terms of books. And so something I had not noticed or paid attention to. And we also bring up is why there aren't female detectives and what that has to do with just gender stereotypes and ideas about what it means to be a detective. And that it's incongruous with what it means to be a mother, to be a woman. I thought that was really interesting. I loved it. Dahlia is one of our favorites. She's so accessible. And by the way, LA privatized, I'm going to link it in the show notes, but I also have put it on my syllabi for the fall.
2: That's great. I'm happy that your students will be introduced to her. She's written a lot of other books. The books that she's discussed on our show have been Haunted Homes, Going Viral, And she, we actually had a really interesting episode at the very, very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, where she was literally locked down in her NYC apartment, giving us a play-by-play as to what it was like in the early parts of the pandemic to be living in New York City. Today, we're talking LA detectives and film noir.
1: Okay, let's do it.
2: I can start off with a question that I think. Is appropriate for any book author, which we never actually seem to ask at the beginning of a podcast. Hey, Dahlia, why did you write this excellent book called LA Private Eyes? What drove you to do this?
0: That's actually a very good question to open up this podcast because there is a funny story behind it. Um, So I. Have been a fan of detective stories forever, which I talk about in the intro to the book. You know, I grew up reading Encyclopedia Brown and Nancy Drew. I mean, it was kind of like, and I worked my way to Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes. It was sort of like the timeline of my youth. Could be uh, delineated through detective stories so i'd always loved them and then when i moved to los angeles i got really into the detective stories that were set specifically in la uh, and it was just you know i moved to la it's such a huge place and so it was kind of it kind of helped me make sense of the city to see it through the eyes of these detectives. Plus it was kind of cool. You know, they would talk about Van eyes, and I'd be like, Oh, I know what that looks like. So I really enjoyed reading those books. And then, you know, like a true film nerd, I wanted to read a book about that to understand it more. And, you know, I've taught classes on film noir. I've, basically have like a shelf of film noir books. And I was like, all right, there's, you know, there's a lot of overlap between film noir and the detective story. So let's go read some books on the private eye. And there weren't any. And I thought that was so strange. Like I really it felt like I was like looking for crumbs, you know, that there w- I'd find maybe a book that had a chapter on the private eye, but I couldn't find a book that did what I wanted, which is, you know, what I did in the book. And partly, I joke that I didn't want to write this book, I wanted to read it, but no one had written it. So I had to do it. And the other funny thing was, uh, my editor at the time at Rutgers was Leslie Michener, and I was working on the going viral book. And I just happened to casually be chatting with her. And she was like, Oh, what do you think you might write about for your next book? And I was telling her basically what I just told you guys that you know, oh, I've been thinking a lot about the private detective and trying to find books on it and I can't. And so maybe, you know, maybe I'll think about doing that for the next book. Basically, that was the conversation. And then I want to say, like, I hadn't even finished the index for the going viral book. Like, I, you know, that book still wasn't like sent off. And Leslie sends me an email and she says, oh, I proposed your book topic in our, our you know, our regular editors meeting and everyone's very excited about it. So we're good to go. hmm. and so it was kind of like I think I say something like that in my acknowledgments, where I thank her for tricking me into writing the book I didn't set out to write it it was sort of like I wanted to read it and then Leslie Michener tricked me into writing it
2: (laughs) that actually is a great story and that's like that's kind of like a writer's dream Uh, hey what are you you proposing next well there was this book that I was looking for researching and it's not out there so I was thinking about writing it lo and behold you get to write it Uh, that's, that's well amazing
0: get to write it it's you know writing is a nightmare. I think most authors will tell you, but it's always good when it's been written. I haven't really looked through it in a while. And I was looking through it prior to this afternoon. And it was like, Oh, this is kind of a fun book. You know, it's a little walk down memory lane, looking at all these great detective stories.
2: What is it about detective stories set in LA that attracted you to it? Or did did it just happen to be that you had moved to LA and you were, you liked detective stories. And so you got into Bosch and you got into the, let's call them the new detective stories. And then that led you to a discovery of the older hard boiled detective stories. Was that kind of the path?
0: I've always loved film noir, partly because I'm a very visual person. I was a photo major as an undergrad, and noir film is just beautiful to look at. You know, I think there's a direct through line from Double Indemnity, Maltese Falcon, Big Sleep, you know, and then, of course, from Big Sleep to Chinatown, etc. I'd liked those movies. That's sort of like one path. And then I've just always liked detective stories. It's something that I sort—I kind of tried to unpack a bit in the book, which was why do people like these so much? You know, and especially one of the things that's interesting to me about The Private Eye is how little he's changed. That it's sort of like you'd expect him to have updated a little bit, but it's, you know, it's really, it's the same character, the same stories over and over again. I don't know if you've been watching the new Bosch Legacy, which is sort of like the... I don't even know. It's not really an epilogue, but it's like the continuation of the Bosch show that, that's on Amazon and in Bosch legacy, Bosch has now become a private eye. And it's just kind of funny to watch it because it's like, you know, you just see all the little boxes that you can kind of check off and amusingly, I mean, not for him, but amusingly his house gets distro- not destroyed, but it gets weakened in an earthquake. So he's living out of his office. Which of course is one of the main tropes of the private eye, where you know he's, you never see him at home; he can't have any kind of stable home life. I think another thing that attracted me to the detective story is that formula. You know, I mean, look at how successful Dick Wolf has been with the Law and Order franchise. First of all, formulas are obviously easy to write, but also they're fun to watch because there's like a safety to the predictability. You know, it's kind of like there's a structure, and then you can look at the little things that change, but like you know that. Harry Bosch is going to save the day. You know that Olivia Benson is going to save the day. And so there's this kind of this escapism and then like this sort of the satisfaction of having the loose ends tied up with the bow at the end of the story. There's just something very pleasing about the detective story.
2: I will piggyback on what you just said and, and I'll read a passage from your book as to why I think the detective story is so relevant for our world today, literally our world today, right now why I actually think there there might be an explosion of more types of detective serializations or any kind of books or series. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways that you can do the new detective stuff. You can, you know, there's people that detect people on social media for trial purposes and lawyers hire people and in order to get, you know, dirt on people or, or insurance claims or anything that's out there. I mean, there's all types of different tangents that you can go down, but there's a passage in your book which you could take out and you could say, wait a minute, is she talking about 1930s, 1940s, or is she talking about 2022? And I'll read it really quick. And this is your explanation Mm -hmm. as to why various conditions led to the rise of the hard-boiled detectives during the 1920s and 1930s. Distrust of government institutions encouraged the rise of the outsider who trusted Mm -hmm. no one Frustration with corporations and big businesses made being self-employed all the more appealing. Growing fears of crime romanticized the figure of a man who was not afraid of anyone or anything, while a general feeling of suffocation within the domestic enclave made the eternal loner a figure of fascination. 2022, we have extreme distrust of government institutions. We have frustration with corporations and big businesses, which make people, mm-hmm. everyone's a gig worker these days, right? I mm-hmm. want to work for myself. I have W-9. Growing fears of crime. I mean, look, look what's going on with the recall of the DA in, in San Francisco, and you got the recall guscone movement. Everyone's afraid of mm-hmm. crime these days. And there is this general feeling of suffocation, Today within the domestic enclave because we're we've been trapped at home for the last couple of years uh, because of the coronavirus. So mm-hmm. my prediction is I think there's going to be this you know explosion of either a people trying to be private detectives or or there's going to be more stories along those lines. Do you see the parallels to today? Oh, of course,
0: and I think that that's you know it, it's one of the reasons why the formula. It's still such a moneymaker. It's still so beloved. I mean, not only do you have this new Bosch legacy, which is continuing the story, but then there's also the new Lincoln lawyer television series on Netflix that I have not yet watched. I've been kind of saving it. Uh, So just the fact that we've even gone back to that kind of older intellectual property Again, the Lincoln-Moyer movie is great. I'm not sure that we needed a TV show, but the fact that someone was like, oh, well, we need another adaptation speaks to the fact that there's potential there. And that's not even the creation of new ones. I mean, how many detective shows are on television? There's no question that this is a lucrative concept. Will we see a successful female one, that's a different question.
1: Was the the author passed away not too long ago? But she had this series where every book started with a letter.
0: Sue Grafton.
1: Yes, yes. When I was reading your description of the loner, and one of the things that caught my attention was, oh yeah, that's right. The detectives they have these small, cramped living quarters that end up Mm -hmm. becoming their office space. So in Sue Grafton's main character, she lived. I think it was under in a garage. It was a makeshift studio. She cut her own hair. She went out, private eye, the detective. She went out for three mile jogs every day. She had a shitty car and I envied her. I don't understand because if somebody were to give me actually those living conditions, I would be angry. But as I was reading it, there was something so liberating about that. She kept her hair short and she just cut it herself. And that she went out on those runs on the beach and that she just had the studio and she had the the man, she was renting it from this older gentleman that she could be friends with and kind of take care of him. And it is like the Lincoln lawyer too, that his office was the car Mm -hmm. and how is it that they pull off that being glamorous, but nobody actually wanting that at the same time?
0: Well, it's, I mean, it's kind of like what what Rudy was talking about, where especially in America, obviously we have European private detectives, but there's a very special type that is the American private eye. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I, as I argue in my book, that it's the modern day cowboy, mm. you know, and which we love the idea of this sort of like tough, rugged loner who has his moral code is always on the side of good, even if not necessarily on the side of the law doesn't need anybody like that's, we romanticize the hell out of that. And I think it's, you know, it's appropriate that, I mean, how many, can you think of like any cowgirls? That we romanticize in the way that we romanticize the cowboy you know i mean it's such like a masculine thing it's interesting that the few times that we get the female private eye which is you know in books not successfully in movies or TV shows there's a masculine quality to her which you you know as you describe you know the living in the garage the cutting her own hair running alone on the I mean it's it's a very kind of tough masculine kind of sexy but sort of not in a feminine way uh which is why in the book I talk about the TV show The Catch and how weird that show is you know it's like an example of the female private eye you know and I also talk about like Veronica Mars and mm-hmm. how Season one, I argue, is one of the reasons, I mean, season one is, is great for a variety of reasons, but I think one of the things that's interesting is as the show progresses, Veronica's character becomes more feminine and the show gets weaker. You know, like there's definitely something about being sort of cool and tough and not feminine, you know, not having your hair done and heavy makeup on and all that stuff. It
1: feels free.
0: Yes. Well, because you're not you're not pandering to someone else's approval or whatever, you know, which is also why the movie version of V.I. Warshawski is so disappointing, you know, and like in the book she goes running all the time because she wants to be strong. And then in the movie, she goes running all the time because she wants to lose weight.
1: Oh, geez. (laughs) You know, I think part of it is is that we are just attracted to somebody who is so in their element and almost Mm -hmm. in the same way where somebody might view a musician, where the person is, seems completely normal. And then as soon as they get on stage and they have their instrument and you can tell that they are completely absorbed in that thing and they are untouchable and it is very, very sexy. And I think that that's partly what the appeal is with why the detectives themselves are just sexy.
0: Yeah. And I think untouchable is a good word because they're really like in their own zone and nobody can get close to them. Like you literally can't touch them. They're single. They're not connected to other people. You know, they don't have a partner, either professional or personal that they work with.
2: And that's one of the benefits of an actual private detective, right? And you point this out in a couple of your books, like the police themselves are confound typically they're, they're like, we have to act within the bounds of the law. Now, right. you know we won't, this is, not a, <laughs> this is not a podcast about whether or not the police actually follow the law in the past or in the future, but, but the whole idea is well, we can only do certain things as a police agency, whereas the private detective is kind of outside of the law and doesn't have the law to dictate how that private detective solves the case. It's really that private detective's moral code, what they consider to be right or wrong in order to bring justice to their clients flying what's interesting is that the difference between the let's call it the classic noir period 1941 and 1958 and as you discussed the neo-noir period we we'll should probably talk about what, the, what those actually mm-hmm. are but the interesting thing about the results of the films of the stories that occurred that came out during the classic period is they were also kind of bounded by the old uh, film code where you know we cannot let the bad guy girl get away with it like there right. has to be justice at the end of this movie I don't I don't care if that wasn't in the source novel I don't care if that wasn't in the screenplay the only way that this movie is going to get approved and shown to an audience is if you show that the bad actor gets caught in justice now in the neo-noir area where the code kind of withered away that's why it's like this these major differences like for example at the end of Chinatown the detective is a buffoon the female character is killed and the bad guy really gets away with it and what so like a spoiler. This, I, well, you know, I, I, there's, a lot, there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this. But it's kind of interesting that like you can't take away the fact that there is that major difference between the two genres. That film noir, as you describe in your book, was a phrase coined by French critics. The French critics got the a whole batch of movies at the end of World War II because they were under Nazi occupation. And what mm-hmm. they did was is they saw these detective stories not just detective stories, but a whole bunch of films because that's the one thing that, that we should talk about. Film noir is not limited to detectives, right? There's right. not just detectives in film noir. Film noir is a whole genre of films that came out. When I say the classical period, or not me, but what's typically known as the classical period, starts with the Maltese Falcon, ends with Touch of Evil, and that's 41 to 58. While the detectives are a big part of it, there's not always a detective that's no. in it. What is a part of the vast majority of film noir is the bad person must get punched. But yeah, I mean, I, I hope I described what film noir is. Oh, and then neo-noir is any other movie That's after 1958, after Touch of Evil, typically in color. And those are movies that have the same elements of film noir, yet have different endings. Like sometimes the bad guy gets away with it. Sometimes the detective doesn't find the killer or or the the wrong person. So there's that dichotomy between the two. So I did want to ask a question about probably... so, So my interest in film noir came... When I went to college, I took this class... It was an English class and our teacher was in love with Raymond Chandler and we had to watch the big sleep. The Big Sleep is kind of known as one of the quintessential film noirs. Mm -hmm. And in preparation for this episode, I've read a lot of articles, uh, not only your book, but a lot of articles on The Big Sleep, and I rewatched the movie. I got to get your thoughts on it. Do you think that The Big Sleep is the film that people should, should be the first film noir that people should watch? Or do you think that that's a film that people should kind of not watch because it's so overly complicated? And so if you would like to make a recommendation as to what would be a good way to get people into the detective story and the genre, what would be your recommendations? But I I didn't mean to put words in your mouth, but how do we get other people to nerd out on this stuff like (laughs) like you nerd out on? Well, first
0: I just want to qualify because you said, First, you were saying like, if you wanted to get people to watch noir, should they watch The Big Sleep? And then it was if you want to get them into The Private Eye, should they watch The Big Sleep? And I feel like if they want to get into noir, then I always recommend starting with Double Indemnity, because I think that's really like a classic noir that just hits all the touchstones, including the bad guys getting punished at the end. And it's got the voice. I mean, it's just got all the classical kind of the ingredients, you know, the checklist for the film noir. So I would start with double indemnity for that. But in terms of the private eye, I think the Maltese Falcon is sort of like the first noir detective kind of hybrid. But that's set in San Francisco. So the first L.A. private eye movie is The Big Sleep. And I think it is important to watch that. I tell my students when we watch The Big Sleep, I have this hilarious graphic that's The Big Sleep told in images. And it's just like, it's like a square that has, I don't know, it's got like 80 little cubes in it. That's like, you know, in, um, sequences from the movie. And then I also tell the anecdote of there's a character who, who dies in The Big Sleep, And when Howard Hawks and Bogart were filming the movie, they were trying to figure out it was it's like the chauffeur and they were trying to figure out, was this guy killed, like murdered or was it a suicide? And they couldn't figure it out. And so they called up Raymond Chandler and they were like, was this guy killed or did he kill himself? And Raymond Chandler said, I don't know, because it doesn't matter. So, yes, The Big Sleep is incredibly convoluted, but the convolution is the point. In that respect, the big sleep is a very classic example. And this is a trope that shows up over and over again, where a lot of the private eye narratives start with something small, right? So someone's getting blackmailed. Someone got kidnapped, maybe someone got murdered, but you you always think it's going to be this like little clear cut thing. And then my metaphor is always like, oh, it's that little thread on a sweater. And you're like, oh, I'll just give it a tug. And then the entire sweater falls apart. So that's what happens in the big sleep, right? So as long as you go into it, knowing that even Raymond Chandler didn't understand everything that was happening in that plot. And you sort of give yourself a pass, then it's okay, because the point is that Marlowe goes in with what he thinks is going to be a simple crime and then discovers behind the curtain, there is this web of corruption. That's one of the tropes of the private eye where it's, you know, you pull back the curtain and you see that there's sex trafficking or like an LA confidential that the police chief is actually the one behind all the crimes. You pull back the curtain. And I always think of like that image from Blue Velvet, where you see all the insects swarming around in the grass in that opening scene. So it's like you pull back the curtain and all the insects are swarming around, even though like, you know, like we were talking about in Double Indemnity where the bad guys get punished. In the private eye stories, there might be a temporary... Kind of balance with like justice, but you know that the private eye didn't clean up everything because you have these insects seething behind the curtain, right? It's just like this temporary fix, like a bandaid was slapped over the bullet wound. And so... Yes. The, basically, to go back to what you were saying, yes, The Big Sleep is incredibly convoluted, but the convolution is the point. The private eye can only do so much, and it's a it's a band-aid.
2: Gwen, to kind of tie this into another frequent... By the way, Dahlia, this is the fourth time she's been on the show. She has <laughs> now tied our other frequent guest, Jeff Cortezi, And there's a tie-in with what we're talking about here with private detectives and noir in that Jeff's claim to fame, and he just released a book on public corruption. And he was the number two in the FBI on public corruption. That's Jeff's passion. He speaks about it. He's going to be teaching a course on it. And what you were just talking about, the detective may have solved this small part of the story, but those ants still get away. Something Mm -hmm. that's underlying everything in film noir, as well as neo-noir, is how corrupt government agencies can be, how corrupt cop agencies can be, and how it's almost like it's always going to be there. You're never going to be able to fix it because of greed, because of the way we are as human beings. And so there's this... It's almost like this this strange element. The last interview that we did was with Jeff, and now we're talking about noir. We we went in depths into okay. the problems of corruption, how that affects society, how that affects our distrust of the government. And here we are talking about you know film noir. Why why are we so attracted to film noir? Why do we watch this stuff? What is it about it that even though these movies make us feel not great when you especially when you watch a film like Chinatown, you watch some other films where people actually do get away with it, much like in real life. Like what attracts us to it well it's because that's what real life is really about
1: I was just thinking that I have always been drawn to these types of novels and I didn't really understand why and I felt a bit sheepish about it especially when I was in grad school and Dahlia maybe you can appreciate this but when you're in grad school you kind of feel like I don't know. There's a part of you that wants to look sophisticated.
2: <laughs> yeah, you should
1: be reading if, Foucault. Yeah, and you're reading like the latest John Grisham. You know what? And I actually got over got over that sheepishness a couple of ways. I was reading the letters that Simone de Beauvoir wrote to Jean-Paul Sartre and at one point she was describing that she was at a cafe reading a mystery novel. She sat down and got comfortable and opened it up and then Merleau-Ponty walked towards her and she was hiding it right away way. And I thought, oh my God. Okay. So somebody else was doing the same thing. The other thing, and then I got over it because I figured if Simone de Beauvoir liked them, Mm -hmm. then I could too. But The other thing that really hit me was, and this goes back to talking with Jeff, who's a law enforcement analyst, and why are we drawn to it? And same thing with these films. But I heard a lecture by the author Jan Burke, and she has written mystery detective stories. And she was responding to this question in the literary community of, do these types of novels count as literature? And Hmm. she responded by saying, yes, because, such a thoughtful answer, Murder is the only crime in which it is up to society to step in for justice because they cannot seek justice themselves. And the entire reason why this genre exists and is successful is because it is tapping into that sense of justice that we have. That if we didn't have it, there wouldn't be this pull to it because when she said it is the only crime in which the victim cannot speak for themselves and it is up to Mm -hmm. everyone else and she said that is the theme running through them and so now i don't hide my mystery novel affair anymore i still love them but i think that it taps into just as homo sapien our love for problem solving Mm -hmm. and our sense of justice that's just part of who we are and now, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Avonmore. Avonmore Inc. sells bridge tallies. Do you play bridge, or do any of your family and friends play? You've got to check out avonmoreink.com Or you can search Avonmore Bridge to reach the website. They sell to all 50 states and internationally. Avonmore also has smart colors playing cards, which are great for kids as well. Are you interested in bridge tallies, scorecards, coasters, post-it notes? Go to avonmoreinc.com. I'll link them in the show notes. And now back to the show. Something I think is really interesting about this book on LA privatized is that LA itself is a character. Yes. Maybe could you expand on what is meant by that? Like what is particular about LA that it's almost as though it's another character in these stories?
0: This is something that I also found really enjoyable, especially when I was living in Los Angeles, because Los Angeles is such a weird place that it's impossible Like you, I mean, obviously you have private eyes set in New York, for instance, but it's a completely different kind of private eye. The essential characteristics of Los Angeles, first of all, the fact that it is this city without a center that it is this sort of big, sprawling mess of a place where so many parts kind of look the same. And then you have these areas that you basically just pass through to get to wherever it is that you're going. You know, maybe you just associate it with being an exit off the 101, but you're never going to get off the 101 at that exit. You're busy going to your destination. Um, And that also you have these areas of the very, very rich and the very, very poor, and that usually that tends to be kind of demarcated a little bit with hills. The richer people live higher up, the poorer people live kind of below, kind of like it was for me when I first moved to Los Angeles and I was trying to make sense of this massive sprawling metropolis through my detective stories. That's what the private eye does is he's kind of like our ambassador who's helping us make sense of this sprawling mess of a city when you live in LA because it's so big you know there's like there's always that joke of like oh I'm never going to go east of the 405 or west of the 405 you know or like I don't go past Franklin or La Cienega or you know it's like we all we we create these little demarcations where like this is my zone and I don't go beyond it. So the private eye is the person who goes beyond those destinations, right? So he's going to all these different areas. He's also going to the homes of the very rich, and then he's going to the dive bar to talk to like an informant in the dive bar. He becomes that person who can make sense of this city without center. That's like an integral part of it. Also, you have the sort of the symbolism of Hollywood, right? Which again goes back to those, the insects teeming behind the curtain where there's this illusion that Hollywood is this place of like gorgeous women, palm trees, constant sunshine, which was sort of the Hollywood brand for a while the PR machine kept a very tight lid on what was happening behind the scenes. And then that tight lid kind of came off and then people were finding out about the drug use and the sodomy and the corruption and blah, 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 you know, Marilyn Monroe's death and, you know, the Black Dahlia murders. I mean, that's why all these incidents became very important for shattering people's illusions for what Hollywood represented. You also see that reflected with the LA private eye where the city initially looked sort of beautiful And then as he starts to investigate the crime, you then discover all that corruption and ugliness below the surface. It's mirroring the discovery of what's actually happening in LA at the same times. I mean, that's what's so rich about it is there's so many layers of this kind of subtext and symbolism that have to do with Los Angeles as a place. And also now, you know, where you have the more contemporary private eye, it then becomes important that LA still has that sort of old school element, right? Where there are still these places that are reminiscent of film noir and LA in the 1930s and 40s and sort of like Musso and Franks and that old Hollywood kind of aura going back to Bosch legacy. You see him traversing those kinds of places. So it's like that also becomes another level of meta-referencing within Los Angeles. It's, it's just fascinating.
2: The other thing that you talk about that's very unique about the LA private detective is the car, right? We're, we're dependent upon mm-hmm. the of the vehicle here, the mode of transportation, right. the primary mode to get around LA, which is both terrible, that's what causes all of our traffic, yet gives you a lot of independence is you got to get around with a car and you always see a private detective in a car. In the Lincoln lawyer, his office is his car. That's where he is turned into it. And it's a very LA thing. It's so dependent upon the vehicle. And that also
0: compounds the sense of isolation and loneliness, which is also inherent to Los Angeles, right? So not only the idea that you're alone in your car, but then because the city is so spread out, there's much more opportunity for alienation and isolation. Whereas if you were in New York City, for instance, you don't have that, right? You're kind of constantly surrounded by people. If you're lonely in New York, it's a very different kind of loneliness. So that's another level to the car.
2: And the other interesting thing about the, detec- the, about the LA detective and, and how so the private detective and what they can and cannot do mm-hmm. as opposed to police agencies, LA, right? When you say LA, LA is a city. It's also a county. The city of Los Angeles is very strange in its layout in mm-hmm. that it encompasses the valley. It encompasses a strip that goes all the way down to the San Pedro Port. It goes out to the west side. Yet within and around these pockets of the city of Los Angeles, which is which has its own police force, this, the LAPD, there mm-hmm. are 88 other cities within L.A. County which go in and out of the city of L.A., traverse. So you go Mm -hmm. in and out of the city of Los Angeles. The LAPD only has jurisdiction within the city of Los Angeles. But then you have the LA County Sheriffs, which does some police agencies for certain cities. But yet certain cities have their own police agencies. Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills Cop, they have their own police agency. Santa Monica, they have their own cops. Culver City, Manhattan Beach, where I live, they have their own police agencies. Think about that. Those are a whole bunch of governmental agencies that have their own turf how can you have a, a police department that can solve crimes that occur all throughout this gigantic area of L.A. County that's the very interesting thing about an L.A. private detective is it's not he, he of course inevitably cuz they're usually he as discussed in your book is not bound right. by those boundaries they can go in and out of the cities they're not handcuffed the same way right. that police agencies are it's just it's just another interesting thing about that Sorry, yeah, Glenn, I, I know you're going to ask something else.
1: Oh no, I, I was thinking about just LA being its own character. I'm wondering if there isn't some sort of uh, satisfaction in seeing that the glamour is an illusion, and that maybe that's part of the appeal. Also, maybe that makes us feel a little bit better that all of this money and beauty. I mean, you described, like for example, in LA Confidential, the sex workers are made to look like. Hollywood stars, but I'm also, as I'm thinking about it, I mean, I think even, which has nothing to do with detective stories, but even something like Real Housewives shows, or even the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial, that part of the fascination is that we're not just watching regular people. We are watching people who had the illusion of everything and beauty and glamour. And then we get to see behind the scenes and it is a wreck. All of a sudden people feel normal. (laughs) If you need to feel a little bit normal, you can watch the kind of things that these people are doing and you're like oh you know what it's not all that glamorous and i'm wondering if that's part of the la detective too that's satisfying of seeing that it's an illusion
0: well and also i mean the stories are so great you know because they're they're so over the top so they're fast i mean even just the johnny depp amber Heard thing i mean it's like i don't even know how many hours of testimony went into that trial but it's like if you're bored and you want to take a deep dive you can fill Hours upon days, (laughs) you know, of watching the footage and reading the story. I mean, it's like there's so much there, Um, and I think that's all. I mean, the Black Dahlia, same. You know, it's like it's that the stories themselves are so interesting because there's so many layers to them. It's not just like, oh, someone had sex with someone and cheated on their husband or whatever. It's just like the, the richness, the twists and turns, you know, that becomes so fascinating.
1: I think it was something that was mentioned in your book about how to write or what are the rules of writing these. And yes. I realized that very quickly because I tried to write one. I was like going to have a crime and the philosophy professor figured out who did it. But I realized that the real trick, I had more of an appreciation for this genre. When I realized that they not only have to plot out who really did it, but they right. have to navigate their audience to these other possibilities and in such a way as to not cheat the audience so that the yeah. end still makes sense. So you have to come up with these other scenarios that are entertaining and logical, even though it's going to go in a different direction. And that was just way too much work for me. So I just want <laughs> Wrote some shitty poetry under a pen. <laughs> I mean, this is it's why Agatha Christie
0: was, you know, such a legend because she was just masterful
2: at doing that. Eighty, the, you know, she
1: has something like eighty books. How does one person do that in their lifetime? Absolutely, yeah.
2: Yeah, I've, I've thought of another reason for years, like personally, why I'm attracted to film war or the noir or the detectives, the, the detective narrative, the detective as a character, and I tried to like, I tried to personalize it. And I don't know. I mean, maybe this is maybe this is just a, a my own way to personal explanation of it. But I actually think the attraction to film noir, or, or the the attraction to the detective as a character, is if you yourself feel kind of like an outsider. There's something about that where you're like, oh, well, that person's just like me. Like that person doesn't necessarily fit in to what is considered society. I really tried to get in deep, and I figured out. Like personally, I was like, okay, the reason why I'm so attracted to film noir and so attracted to these detective stories is because I'm an Arab American. Growing up here, I've always felt as an ounce, even though I look white, I went to Christian school and everything, even though I was considered like a part of the inside, I've always felt like an outsider. And that's something about the film noir genre. I understand what it feels like to be an outsider. And there are these mutual feelings of alienation, which is a theme of both film noir and, and something that's a part of the detective story themselves is alienation, isolation, and loneliness. There is this, oh, I really want to be a part of everything else, but I know I'm an outsider. And so that's my personal reason why I'm so obsessed with this genre. That's why I I try to watch every film noir possible is is my attraction to it. And I do wonder if there is that other element. Anybody that feels, quote unquote, on the outside is attracted to these types of stories because it's like, oh, cool. Like, I get it. Like, this speaks to me. Does that sound crazy?
0: No, not at all. And I think it's not just that the the detective is an outsider, but that the detective is, good at his job because he's an outsider. Mm -hmm. Right. And this idea that there's, you know, the reason why the detective is always the one solving the crimes and not the cops is because as an outsider, you have a perspective on things that you cannot see when you're inside them. It's not just that you can identify with being an outsider because that's what you're seeing, but that it's almost like being an outsider becomes a superpower, you know? And so there's like a validation from that.
2: I've been saying for years that I have superpowers. Literally. <laughs> nobody believes me, but but my crazy upri- my crazy upbringing and all the things I've experienced ha- does give me superpower. And I feel like Dahlia, you have those same superpowers. You have super superpowers because you put everything that you're interested in into books. That I want to read that give me more superpowers. So you need to write more books to give yeah. me more powers. That's so that's my two cents
1: on it. I mean, you're when I've sat so what this is the third book I read, but I, I mean, every time I sit down, I'm just thinking, oh my God, I hadn't noticed X. And so that mm-hmm. that'll bring me to this one, the the final chapter in here that talks about gender and women detectives. That now, I mean, I had not realized that in stories with you have female detectives that they either have to be way older, like the murder, she, yeah, murder, she wrote mm-hmm. Angela Lansbury or mm-hmm. much younger that childbearing age, mm-hmm. or being a mother does not cut it. You can't, it's, incongruous with being a detective. And it had not occurred to me that that was the case, either too young or much older. Right. So can you maybe explain why that is the case? Why would it be incongruous to be a mother? It's not incongruous to be a father and to have children if you're a man. And do you see that changing? Because I think that that could.
0: There's a lot going on in your question. So one is, yes, the private eye can have children, but he cannot have a stable family life. Uh So he cannot be, for instance, happily married. So because again, that would contradict the alienation, the loner status, etc. You know, he probably has an ex-wife, for instance, who maybe left him because he drank too much, right? Or he's never been married. There's got to be some kind of problem with having emotional intimacy with somebody. He was addicted Addicted to the the job, job, addicted to alcohol, won't let anyone get too close. In turn, that also would apply to a woman. So if you have a female private eye, she can't be happily married because that wouldn't fit the mold of being the sort of the the loner outsider. What's interesting is when you do have a female detective, she usually has a partner because it's kind of like we can't really like it's there's something threatening about having, you know, a loner female private eye right? Because you can't have a woman who's too independent. So if you have a woman detective, she's going to be a cop, right? Working within the institution of the police force, or she's going to be an FBI agent working within that kind of framework. The only way that you have a woman on her own solving crimes is if she's a girl like Nancy Drew or Veronica Mars, or she's old like Miss Marple or Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote, that women of childbearing age need to be having children. Like they should not be running around on the streets late at night by themselves, drinking too much and avoiding emotional intimacy, which is crazy because you're like, I've seen that character, right? I mean, we've seen that character. We just have never seen that character successful as a female private eye.
1: And if she was a woman who was so addicted to her job that she, that her children were with her ex-husband, she would instantly be unlikable and untrustworthy. You could not switch those roles.
0: And that's why, for instance, you know, I, V.I. Warshawski is so fascinating, even though it's set in Chicago and not LA, because for instance, like I gave that example of the film adaptation has the main character going running every day, but then you see her come home and get on a scale. And then in the movie adaptation, they give her a partner who is a small child. You don't have that in the book. So it's kind of like, well, apparently that's the partner she deserves. is This like eight-year-old girl. And then you see her asking her boss, you know, like, do you think I'd be a good mother? You know, like that's her existential question. And then at the end of the movie, she like gets back together with her ex-boyfriend and adopts the girl. And it's like, boom, happy family life. Yeah, there's just something that's apparently like way too problematic about having a woman refuse to have children and also being this private eye. And you have a couple examples like, you know, Jessica Jones a little bit. But then like, you know, the catch is another example of one that failed. You wouldn't think it would still be so radical. But where's our female James Bond? You know, I mean, it's just it's kind of like certain things are sacred. And we just I don't know, it's like there's this stumbling block to giving us the female equivalent.
1: I am having a hard time recalling the name, but it was a show. I think it only got three seasons, but Angie Harmon was, is that Mm. she she was in it? She played, but she was within a system as well. But that was the only thing I could think of the only woman I could think of. She's beautiful. She tried to play as though she was a bit more uh, tomboyish or whatnot, but it's almost as though for the woman to be single and to have a sort of masculine job, she still has to be beautiful for the audience. Yes,
0: of course. Yes, Where- Um, Yes. And obviously, you know, you have lots and lots of male private eyes who are not beautiful. Although I do talk, I do talk briefly in the book about some of the television versions from like the late 1960s to the 1970s, like the Rockford Files and Mannix, um, Matt Houston, where you do see the very handsome male private eye, topless, muscular, riding a helicopter or something. So there was this like brief period of time where the male private eye was the heartthrob. But for the most part, you know, it's like, I don't know, Titus Welliver, I think is how you pronounce his name, playing Bosch. Not what I would call a heart- heartthrob. I mean, Humphrey Bogart was charming, but I don't know that he's sort of traditionally handsome. Colombo um, Was that? Was he was that- a cop, but oh, right? Okay. Was he a
2: cop? Peter Falk? Gosh, I, I'm trying to remember. Uh I, I think he was a private detective. I'm trying to I actually actually remember if Peter Falk was a was a was a cop or not. Um, what about
1: Magnum PI? But that was Hawaii. That wasn't.
2: I mean, yeah, I mean everyone's good looking in Hawaii. <laughs> men, <isn't>
0: that, <laughs> yeah, it's Lieutenant Colombo. He was a cop. Lieutenant Columbo. Okay. okay,
2: so he was a cop. Yeah, no, I look, I I love the book. I love that you brought up L.A. I mean, L.A. is something that I'm fascinated with. Uh, obviously, the transportation aspect of it, that course in college, you know, it was great was uh, it's not an award book or anything, but I don't know if you've ever heard of the book uh, City of Quartz by Mike Davis.
0: Yeah, I think I don't I quote it in this?
2: I, I think you do. So in that same course, it's so funny, Dahlia. Like I, I almost feel like, what you're teaching your your students is the same course that I took. This was just an English course at the University of California. We studied The Big Sleep, and then we she immediately followed up The Big Sleep with we had to read The City of Courts, and we had to learn about the history of LA and a whole bunch of all the corruption of LA. And then we had to follow that up with a book about the transportation of Los Angeles. And so it's all intertwined. And, right. and if you and if you're a big LA junkie, you got to get into film noir. You got to read all these You just you just <laughs> got you got to get into Bosch. You got to get into this stuff to truly know the city. And I while I was born in LA, I grew up in Orange County. I didn't know LA, its history, its weird history and all the weird stuff around it until I got into film noir cuz well this stuff is, you know, fictional, there's a lot of real facts in in the movies. Like they had to have a lot of real police corruption stories that have a lot of real history and, yeah. and you know Chinatown being an allegory for the raping of, of Owens Valley uh, and the water wars in, in Los Angeles it's fascinating stuff so if you're an LA junkie get into film noir you'll you'll really know more about this town Dolly's always got
1: something for us she's got she's got films there's always a transportation angle <laughs> and then and then there's a gender angle so I feel like she really is writing for us
0: you're my target audience <laughs> That's
2: true. True. We want to get you more more book sales because that's what you deserve amongst many more.
1: I mean, I'll just wrap it up. I was just thinking about how important LA is almost as this extra character because there's another writer that I've really, really enjoyed and she's Irish and her stories take place in Ireland and her name is Tana French. Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. I've read some of her stuff. Yeah, and it is, but that would be an example of the countryside in Ireland is that like I'm realizing- that that is also part of the character and that that's why the tone of her books looks so different than, let's say, what we're talking about here with something like L.A. Confidential. It's really your work is giving me an appreciation for how significant the environment is to contributing to the joy of unraveling these mysteries of these detectives it's it's essential yeah i love Yeah it. i mean
0: and if if you're curious about the importance of LA to the private eye watch some of the shaft movies which are very oh, yeah. very New York and you'll see how completely different they are as a result of just being in, I mean, for a variety of reasons, but just being in New York
2: changes everything.
1: All right. Dahlia, thank you. Thank, thank you, to you both so of much. You.
2: Keep, keep so writing. So awesome. Keep writing books. Wait, what do you have? Your number one fan one? needs
1: more. What's the next <laughs> one? We need to know.
0: Um, the next book is going to be about memory. And I hope to have something a little more clear cut to share about that in a few months. I, and I've started, you know, doing some research and reading about that. But then I got sidetracked with this call for papers that had to do with like the, I can't remember how they phrased it, but basically like the female corpse and like the, ah. the body of the dead woman. And so there might be a slight detour into the Black <laughs> Dahlia, which is another one of my pet projects. Which comes right back to what we were talking about, which is, you know, seems like it would be fictitious, you know, just out of like a noir movie, but I lived around the corner from the house where she was very likely killed. So it was oh. I, again, that's something that's very LA where it's like the blurring between fact and fiction.
2: If you're referring to the house that's very likely killed, you must believe in the Black Dahlia Avenger theory.
0: Is that the Jaws house that, that was the doctor, the gynecologist yeah. who did it? Yeah yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. Did you listen to the podcast? Uh, gosh, what is the podcast? And they have the TV tie-in. It's, it's an excellent podcast.
0: I've listened to some podcasts about the Black Dahlia. I can't remember which ones. And I also did a podcast about the Black Dahlia. You did um yeah, it was it's for a podcast that's called something like Scary Stories We Tell in the Dark or something like that. But if you do a search for like Dahlia Scary Stories, Black Dahlia or something, you should be able to find it.
2: Root of evil. Have you have you listened to that podcast, Dahlia?
0: I'm terrible with names, so I can't remember, but I know that I've listened to some that talk about like the sort of like everything that was happening in that household with yes. the family is that That's it, it.
2: it root, okay. the root of evil the true story of the hodell family and the black dahlia and it, it's got the black dahlia avenger author yes. and all of his brothers and sisters uh ah, so you believe in that theory too very I fascinating do. Fascinating. I, I, I just listened to a new episode. So I'm a Black Dahlia junkie to James Elroy junkie. I'm an Elroy, like mm-hmm. real junkie. And I just heard a brand new episode of a whole new theory that I had never heard of on the Black Dahlia. I'll send that to you.
0: Yeah, it must have been The, the Root of Evil because, yeah, it was all about the Hodel family.
2: Yeah, it's great. It's a great podcast. Uh, I, I highly recommend
0: it. So, that. yeah, so there might be a sidebar for the Black Dahlia, in which case maybe we can do a little mini podcast episode about Careful. the Black Dahlia.
2: You in- put
1: it out there in the universe and it ends up being a book for you. That's what we were, <laughs> <Sure>. right? <laughs> in- just- I would probably- be okay with that.
0: I'd be okay with that.
2: <laughs> I'm in. I am in. Awesome. Any
0: excuse to get back to talk to you guys? <laughs> you're
1: the, <laughs> I you're love the best.
2: It. <laughs>
0: Thanks
1: again. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwen Lundolsky and Rudy Salo. If you would like to sponsor a show or get in touch, if you have any questions, you can email us, goodisindthedetailspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram, pod. We're also on Facebook. And if you would like to support the show, you can check us out and get extra content, join our book club patreon.com slash good is in the details. And I will link that in the show notes. And also remember to check out our sponsor, Avonmore Inc. Let them know that good is in the details sent you. Okay. Until next time. Bye.